This morning we're reading from the <clears throat> from the uh, book of United in Christ. In, in light of that, I, I invite you, as you hear God's word this morning, to remember that this was being written to people like you who lived in a city called Ephesus, which is still in existence today. most amazing thing about this city is it was a city that was uh, extremely rich. Uh, in one of the particular cities around the area, it, it was known for the worship of a, of a god named Ar Artemis. Artemis of the Ephesians. It was a, a city that made its living by making statues of this god. And uh, it was a god of fertility. It was a god of plenty. And as they would go to this temple and they would worship this idol, they would pray that god, this god, this piece of stone, would enrich their lives increase their influence. It, uh, it was a city that would rival Charlotte or New York or Atlanta as far as commerce because of the trade industry that was in that area. And in that area, God called the Apostle Paul to preach the gospel. And to his utter amazement, there were people who heard and believed in Jesus Christ. They repented of their sins and they they were redeemed and re-reconciled to God. We have read through the first chapter where Paul starts with an astounding praise of God saying, thank God you believe in Jesus. That's the Reader's Digest version. Thank God you believe in Jesus. And he did this because of the miracle of belief. I don't, I don't know if you've thought about that. But if you have come to place your faith in Christ this morning, you did not do it because you're smart, you have a high IQ, or you were raised in the right family, or you were born in the right country. You have come to faith in Christ because God did this. He drew you to himself. And this is what Paul is so grateful about. And then he goes on and prays that they increase in their knowledge in this, this God who called them and drew them. And then as was so wonderfully poured out last week in last week's sermon about the gospel and its power. I would invite you to go back and, and hear that message again of the clarity of Paul's message of the gospel that, that Logan led us through. And so as we continue this study, I, I just want to pray that God would so move in your hearts that you would begin to own this, that you would begin to realize this is not about someone else's life. This is your life if you are in Christ. And so I invite you now to hear the word of God as we pick up with chapter 2 and verse 11. Therefore, remember, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that in the time you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made the two groups, 
won and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. He purposed, or his purpose, was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to, excuse me, one minute, yeah, in one body uh, to, <laughs> to put to death the hostility. Verse 17. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So in him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Let's pray. Father, as we, we are at the near end of a pandemic and we begin to regather as a church, my fear for our congregation is that we will forget who we are and why we are here. And so in these moments, help us, help us to remember. We ask and we pray it in Jesus' name. And the people of God said together, amen. I, uh, I find that as I'm now 60 and I'm getting to a point where, where you and I are, are struggling with memory, that I'm having to use the old methods of tying things around your finger. Do you recognize that? Uh, in the olden days, when people wanted to remember something, they would put something around their finger to remember. Uh, in a couple of movies, for those of you who are Harry Potter's fans, there is a, there's a character named Neville who can't seem to remember anything. And so he has strings tied around him, all kinds of fingers, but his, his mother sends him what was called a rememberal, which is supposed to remind him by turning a certain color. And he shakes it saying, yes, but I can't remember what I'm supposed to remember. And, and that's how I feel sometimes. I, I feel like I can't remember what I'm supposed to remember. I, I think that memory is one of those things that regardless of what age you are, if you are busy, if you find yourself bombarded with business and life, we tend to forget things so easily. And so it's, it's no surprise then as Paul writes this, he says, remember. Well, why is that so important? Well, memory is something that carries us forward into the future as we reflect upon the past. Memory is something uh, that carries us into the future that helps us as we reflect upon the past. Why is that so important? Well, it's important because without the memories that we have, we will oftentimes live foolish lives. Whoever said youth is wasted on the young probably also said it's also, also wasted on people who can't remember what they did when they were young. In other words, 
there are things that we have done that we're ashamed of. And if we haven't learned from that, then we are bound to repeat them again. I don't know about you, but I, I find songs that speak of memory to be powerful. I don't know if any of you are Alan Jackson fans, are you? Alan Jackson wrote a song, and he says, Remember When? And it's a touching, touching, powerful song of a husband singing to his wife. And some of the chorus goes, Remember when the vow, we vowed the vows and walked the walk? We gave our hearts, made the start, and it was hard. We lived, we learned, life through curves. There was joy, there was hurt. Remember when? Remember when old ones died and new were born? Life was changed, disassembled, rearranged. We came together, we fell apart, and broke each other's hearts. Remember when? Remember when 30 seemed so old? Now looking back, it's just a stepping stone to where we were, where we've been. We've said we do it all again. Remember when? Remember when we said we, when we turned gray, when the children grow up and move away, we won't be sad. We'll be glad for all the life that we have had. Remember when? Powerful, isn't it? just brings tears to my eyes when I think about how memory and remembering things is so important. Therefore, it's no surprise that Paul says, remember. Remember one, three things this morning I want to bring your attention. First, remember that formerly you were hopeless and without God. I don't, I don't want to talk about that, do you? But yet if we forget, how can we go forward? How can we live? Well, what is he talking about? Well, look in verse 11. It's very powerful there. It's laid out before us. Remember that formerly you who, you who are Gentiles by birth called the uncircumcision. Well, what's a Gentile? Well, a Gentile is simply a Jewish term for those who are not Jewish, those who were not born of the Jewish line, who were not ethnically Jewish. You see, those individuals are the promised chosen people of God. God made some promise to their forefather Abraham and one of the promises that is very powerful if you go back and look in Genesis chapter 12 is God told Abraham that I'm going to bless you. It was called an unconditional promise. God said I am going to bless you so that you will be a blessing so that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. What did Abraham have to do? Nothing. God said I'm going to do this most amazing thing is in Jesus Christ, you have been given an unconditional promise. And it's the same promise that God gave Abraham. That God is going to bless you so that you will be a blessing, so that through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. But more importantly, Paul brings this about because you weren't that person who was blessed. You were a Gentile. You were separated from God. More specifically, you were called an uncircumcised person, meaning that you weren't given the mark of the covenant, which was circumcision. You were alienated. You were foreigners to all of this. In other words, you had no share in God and his word. When I think of being a foreigner, I remember distinctly going to Bosnia to visit Anne right after Christmas when she was there. And how people spoke a different language and they wore different kinds of clothes and they stared at us. 
that was one of the Bosnian traits that you were a true Bosnian or Croatian as you stared at people who were strangers. So as we'd go into restaurants, they would just look at us like, and we felt it. We did not feel like we belonged. Well, so were you. So were you. Remember when coming to church felt like that? When you didn't feel a part of Christ or his body, you just kind of wondered, what are these strange-looking people doing in this strange place, singing these strange songs, worshiping a strange God we can't see if there is a God? You felt out of place. You felt like a peg in a round hole. Remember? Remember when? And the saddest part was that you were not only feeling like a stranger and alien, you were without hope, meaning you knew you were not what you meant to be, and you had no recourse except but to justify or excuse or somehow minimize things that you had done that you knew, you knew were far from what was right. You know the saddest part about remember when? Is that people who are still in that state without God, without Christ, are under God's wrath. It's frightening. Paul writes in Romans to another group of people. He wrote them these words, which really is quite frightening to think. He he says, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what he has made so that people are without excuse. And what is the wrath of God? Well, because they, they ignored these things about God, God gave them over to their desires. God gave them over to their desires. There is the wrath of God. Remember when? When you were being led into the darkness of the heart and there was no one to stop you, no one to hinder you, and you didn't want them to? If that's where we were, why do we need to remember that? Because there is no greater comfort of knowing Christ than knowing what he has saved us from. You see, that wrath that is being revealed is going to one day end up in a judgment. God's judgment will come upon the earth. And we say that in the Apostles' Creed. Did you notice that? We, we went through it so fast this morning. I believe he will come to judge the quick and the dead. Uh, I used to think when I was a little boy when we'd say that, those who are quick is those who are fast enough to get out of the way, you know. Kind of like when we were sitting in the pew and my grandmother would flick our ear if we were sitting in the wrong direction or squirming too hard. Now, she had the longest arms, I think, in the entire church. She could reach all the way down and just hit the back of your ear in such a way that no matter what you were doing, you just could do nothing but freeze. That's how bad it was. And so when that, when that judgment came, it was like, well, let's be quick and we can get out of it. But when you say that, I believe that he will come to judge the quick and the dead. What we're declaring 
will come to judge the church on how we lived out the gospel. What did we do with our faith in Christ? Did we, did we prosper in our faith? Did we grow in our dependence upon Jesus? Did we, did we go deeper into the knowledge of God? Which is exactly what Paul prayed in the beginning of the Ephesians letter. And, and more importantly, he will come to judge the quick and the dead. What does that mean? The dead are those who have never been raised to life in Christ. And so as you think about our world and you look at what's happening in our days, it is not lost to God. It is playing out in exactly the way he has warned us in the scriptures. And he says, remember, you used to be that way. I was walking through the store this past week. I won't tell you which one. And just don't worry, it wasn't the ABC store. But... <laughs> I was walking through the store and looking at people and hearing their conversations and talk, and I was thinking, I wonder how many are under the wrath of God. And, and the answer was, all of us are, unless we come to repentance and faith in Christ. had a conversation with someone one time a long time ago that says, well, I just don't believe that God would send me to hell. And I thought, how curious, because God doesn't need to send us to hell. We're on our way there. And if God had not rescued us, if God had not called you and drawn you to Jesus Christ, your destination would be assured. You say, well, I don't believe in hell. Well, that's wonderful. How real will it be when people arrive there? You say, well, I don't want to talk about hell. Well, wait a minute. Remember? Remember that was where you were heading. But God, but God what? That's what Paul is teaching the Ephesians. But once you were lost, but now you're found. So look at me at verse 13. It's so wonderful to hear these words. It's the kind of thing we come to church for, isn't it? It's the, it's the encouragement we need in times that we live. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were who were far away, have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made the two one as he destroyed the barriers, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. What is Paul saying? Well, first, please notice he says that it's in the person of Jesus that something happened. It was in Christ that you were changed, not by going to church. You, you didn't become a Christian because you drove into the parking lot and came through these doors. That doesn't make you a Christian, just like it doesn't make you a Big Mac to go to McDonald's. It, it doesn't happen that way. It happens when the internal soul of your body begins to resonate with the truth of the gospel so that you find that you are hopeless and without God and you reach out to the Lord in the great mercy that he offers and he gives forgiveness and he touches you and seals you with the Holy Spirit and brings you from death to life. How does he do this? It's through that power of the cross, the blood that has been shed for you. You see, the, the sin of the world must be judged for what it is. It must be condemned. God cannot be just and loving. He must, in love, 
bring judgment upon those who are guilty. And the most amazing thing that in Christ he has solved our sin problem by sending his son to die on the cross so that he pour the penalty for our sins. And the Bible says without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. It was his blood that was shed for you. And as his blood dripped on that cross, it should have been mine. It should have been yours. But it was his. And Paul declares that you are now found because that blood that was shed for you has washed away the enmity, the hostility that was once in your heart for God and now has quickened you, made you alive to love God, to pursue him, to want him. This is what God has done. What the power of the cross, the power of the cross that is able to transform the person who is destined for hell. And suddenly, in the quickening of a moment, is made alive to God. How is that possible? Well, Paul says it was the Old Testament that told us this was going to be. You see, the laws, the regulations were all pointing to the Savior who would come, that he would be the one who would deliver us from our sins. Those things were the teachers. They were the tutors that would bring us to this person of Jesus. And so as we've gone through the Ten Commandments in our last series, one of the things I had prayed and hoped in my own heart and for yours is that you would see the depth of our sins and the greatness of the grace of our loving God who can forgive because someone paid the penalty for us. I find it amazing when people say, well, God is forgiving. Surely he will forgive my sins. Forgiveness is costly. It costs God his death on the cross. And so when you think about that phrase, forgive us of our sins even as we forgive others their sins, we know too how costly forgiveness can be. Have you ever held a grudge? And yet God holding a grudge, chose to forgive me and you. Why? Why would God do that? The problem with American Christianity today is we think that God is in the business of making us feeling comfortable, happy. Peaceful. But that's not why God has saved you. Paul reveals for us in the 17th and 18th verses of this passage that God had determined before the creation of the world that he was going to destroy the hostility in your heart so that you would no longer look at anyone who was in Christ in the same way. And for the Ephesians, this would be powerful in their day because the Jews would have nothing to do with Gentiles. They saw them as without God and hopeless and therefore let them die. The Gentiles know that there's a God. If they want God, they can become Jewish. They can become proselytes. But other than that, they are no greater, no more important than dead grass on the lawn. And we who are Jews are the promised people of God, 
And so because of that, we have great boasting. And that kind of enmity that existed between Jew, the Jew would not even have lunch with a Gentile. And if one of the Jews' children married a Gentile, they would go ahead and have a funeral for that child, considering them dead because they have walked away from the Jews by forbidding or doing what is forbidden by God. You see, there was no more greater enmity than those two. And what Paul is teaching us in Ephesians is that now that we are in Christ, there is nothing that should hinder us from becoming one with anyone who is in Christ. Anyone. I don't know about you, but have, have you been to church lately? There are really some weird people in our church. Some of you are laughing. You're getting it. It was a joke. There are some of you who have habits that are quite different from mine. Some of you have personality quirks that just are, well, you just don't get my jokes. <laughs> and, and sometimes I wonder if you have an intelligence level enough to understand even the sermons I preach. Some of you feel that way about me. Why, if you look at the state of humanity, by nature, we are not people who are drawn to being united with anyone. And if you don't believe me, ask people who are married. Have you noticed that? It seems that any time you get more than one person, more than two people in a room, you've got two varying opinions on everything. And so when you and I begin to step back and think of this, what God is doing in your life is he is drawing you to himself and he's drawing other people unlike you to himself in such a way that his purpose is to form a new creation called the church. And this church, these group of people who are so diametrically opposite from each other are finding themselves to be a new creation so that they have not only a love relationship with God through Christ, they begin to love each other in Christ so that when the world looks at the church, they go, how in the world do you Republicans love those Democrats? And how do you Democrats love those Republicans? How in the world can you people from New York who moved down to North Carolina possibly love Southern tea and the people who serve it? How in the world can you West Coast people who come from the land of fruits and nuts, <laughs> possibly put up with the East Coast people who think they're God's gift to the rest of the nation. Do you see it? It, it really brings us to the third point, and that is that God has included you in the household of God. 
I, don't, I, I know that many of you have come to church and you're dressed and you look really nice and you're all fresh. And, but if we could just have a video of your life the two hours before you came to church, just those two hours, and we could fast forward it to see what your life was like in your families, I'm sure we would see something from a Hallmark card. You know, or a Norman Rockwell painting where everyone is just sedate and loving and so caring, right? Right? Am, am I, am I going to be shocked by you? You see it, don't you? From this god-awful mess of people that we were, God has wooed you to Jesus Christ. And he is in the process of melding you into a new creation so that the world would look at you and they would say to themselves, this Jesus lives. Because if these Republicans and these Democrats can love each other, if these northerners and these southerners can love each other, if these whites and these blacks can love each other, if these people from the east coast and the west coast can love each other, there really must be something true about this Jesus. Now, why does Paul tell them this? Because there's a chance they won't love each other. Please notice the reason of the so what of this is that first that God wants you to understand his will. What is his will? His will is not that you be happy and wise and pretty and smart in Jesus. His will is that you would be a new creation. That you would understand the mystery that God has kept hidden until Christ has been revealed. That God is going to reunite heaven and earth to the Father in heaven through Jesus Christ and you are the instruments God is using to bring people who were once in the death of their sins to Jesus Christ and alive to God. Isn't that beautiful? You look at the problems in your world right now, people. Look at, look, look at me. You look at the problems in your world right now and you shake your head and you say, I don't know what's happening to our nation. Well, let me tell you what. God knows, and he has called you to be the conduit through which he brings satisfaction and redemption and forgiveness to a world in need. That's the reason you've been saved. That's the reason that you would know and do the will of God. Secondly, he wants you to understand that God has chosen you for this purpose. It wasn't that you volunteered. I, I love those, those, uh, those stories where, where someone's in the army and they're lined up, you know, all the privates are lined up and they say, okay, we need some volunteers to be on the demolition crew and everyone but one person takes a step backwards, right? And the only person who didn't take a step backward because he was clueless is standing there, the only one in front of everyone else, and the sergeant says, way to go, Rick Sorensen, you volunteered. <laughs> well, guess what? That's what God did with you. When he drew you to Christ through the blood, when he called you to put your faith in Christ and repent of your sins, he said, 
I don't volunteer you. I chose you for this. Now, I want you to know that's very comforting for me because I don't feel very confident to do that. Do you? I don't feel like I'm a person who is trained in order to be used by God. And you know, the glory of the God that we serve is that God doesn't want trained people. He wants fat people. You know what a fat person is? Someone who's faithful to loving Jesus, someone who's available to do what Jesus asks, and someone who is teachable, who will learn from Jesus how to live the way he wants us to. And then finally this morning, not only does God want you to understand that this is you, that he's chose you for this, he also wants, and there it is, God has sealed you with the Holy Spirit. You're not left to your own power. Isn't that glorious? This is why we pray. It's why we worship. It's why we gather in small groups. By the way, we're really praying. I'm beginning to pray that God will move in our church to begin starting a small group fellowship ministry in September. Some of you desperately need to pray with each other and encourage one another in a smaller setting where you can have fellowship. And I want you to just pray, God, would you bless our church with groups that would want to meet and pray together and study the Bible? I don't want you, I don't want to, I'm, I'm not asking volunteers. I'm not choosing anyone. I'm just asking you pray. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is at work in us to help us be conformed to this purpose that God has for us. And then fourthly and finally this morning, and I know you're ready to leave, but listen to me. God wants you to experience the hope of your calling. If you notice, all four of these are from the first chapter of Ephesians. Where Paul has prayed that the Ephesians will come to know experientially a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. They won't just know it in their heads. Theology without experience is dead. You can be the most orthodox believer in the world, but if you're not living out the gospel, your theology is dead. It's not life-giving. And the most amazing thing is that God is writing this on our hearts this morning that he wants you to understand regardless of whether you feel confident to do it or trained enough or have the background to accomplish what he's purposed for you that God wants you to understand he wants to use you to further his kingdom. Would you, would you trust him to do that? If you're like me, you're going to say, well, Lord, Logan's a better fit. We just called him. He can do it. Or Jim Toole just came on the session. Yeah, let's let him do it. No, no, no. You don't, you don't get it. This is who you are. This is your calling in Jesus Christ. And Paul wanted the Ephesians to understand that. 
God wants you to fully trust in him. And the people of God said together, let's pray. Father in heaven, as we think about your word, as we begin to reflect upon the calling that you have given to us, remind us. In those moments when we want to judge other people and condemn them for their behavior, where we want to look at others and say, well, if they just would act right, well, what, what would cause anyone to act like a Christian except that they know Christ? And so, Father, I pray in my own heart as I look upon the people of our culture that I would not be quick to condemn others for their sins. But I would begin to ask, because I remember what it was like for me before I knew you, do they need the gospel? They need Christ. So much more to learn from this letter. I feel so, so vulnerable because I don't know enough. And therefore, I thank you for your word and for the power, the glorious power of the Father at work in us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.